Welcome back to Future Sight, a show from Capgemini Invent. I'm Oliver Jones. On this show, we explore new ways to adapt and grow for the future in business. This week, we're doing something a little bit different. One year ago, the world went into lockdown after the novel coronavirus took hold in a global pandemic. Its effect on our lives has been analysed in every way imaginable. But we wanted to take stock of the lasting effects the pandemic will have on business. So in this episode, we're going to explore what disruption the pandemic caused, the mistakes that were made on the journey to recovery, and finally, what it all means for the future. We're going to focus on three different industries that the pandemic affected in contrasting ways, retail, automotive, and financial services. Consumer behaviour in all of these industries has shifted, and that is forcing fundamental changes in business models. So, money, cars, and shopping. To start us off with money, here's Colin Payne, Vice President at Capgemini Invent. Oh, it's it's such a significant year that's gone past, um, and it's quite difficult to just give uh, a short answer to this. But let me try and focus in on the really, really big, big uh, ticket items. Um, I think firstly, when the, the the idea of a potential epidemic started to uh, occur in Asia, uh, I was out in Asia. And I started to see behaviours that were um, slightly defensive, um, but also confused. So the, the consumer behaviours, the um, the banking behaviours, this was a new, we have to, we know this by now, but it, it was a brand new uh, potential for us. We, we hadn't seen anything uh, coming on this horizon before uh, to this extent. And obviously, as it spread through the world, you know, first it went to Italy, and then we started seeing it through uh, throughout Europe, uh, and then eventually over to the States. When we suddenly, um, and it was quite sudden, it was in a matter of weeks, uh, recognised the, the potential of a pandemic. Uh, it was an extraordinary fast switch uh, for people's use of money. Um, I think one of the biggest changes was, of course, the, the move to digital. So I think uh, not only the use of digital cash, uh, so the, the switching to contactless payments, for example, uh, the switch to new channels, digital channels. Uh, and of course, as we went into the uh, the lockdown periods around the world, uh, of course, the natural switch to uh, non-retail experiences physically, and we were going to e-commerce instead. These were all really big pivot changes, um, which the banks and other institutions had to cope with uh, as we changed our habits. So I think it was digital uh, was the driver for those habit changes. And um, then, of course, everything else around that, uh, whether it's the servicing through the channels, whether it's the ability to get advice. Um, you know, you're in a situation where many people uh, didn't know which way to turn at the beginning. There was a lot of confusion. Uh, so the role of a trusted advisor uh, naturally forced to institutions and um, banks were in the prime position to help people uh, understand the changes that were happening to them. So really massive pivots. As you mentioned, the cutting edge of financial services for a long time has been in digital and open banking and fintechs. Does that mean financial services was better placed than other industries to respond to the pandemic? Yes, I think I think they certainly were. They they had been on the journey for digitalization for many years. Um, so I think some of their processes and some of their capabilities were already switched to a digital environment. Um, the behaviors of um, 
those who work at banks uh, had started to migrate to a more digital world. So many uh, of the companies that we work with are, are quite um, embracing of new digital technologies to deliver the services. So back office and middle office have already uh, successfully transformed in many cases. Um, but that's not to say there isn't still a legacy of technology which slows things down for rapid change. So. I, th I think what we've had is um, the foundations of open banking have allowed us to think about orchestration of services, orchestration of data, and the ability to quickly pivot, um, leaving aside the legacies. So bringing the data out of the legacy technology and representing it in more modern ways. So I, I think that foundation has been brilliant for them to be able to respond to customer need. Um, and I think the other thing is, of course, they've been, um, I suppose people like me have been banging on about customer uh, centricity and customer first for... Um, for a decade now so we, we've been really flying the flag to listen to the customer and be able to respond to their need um i must admit i couldn't predict this particular black swan um but i have predicted black swans um this one came along and required a a more uh, energetic pivot i think than any of us would have uh, liked to see but um i think the banks actually have done very well and um when you look at the evidence of what the banks are doing and have done over the last 12 months um they've been very very quick to respond in extraordinarily difficult circumstances. Uh, and I think that's a credit to everyone who works with the banks, because I think we're all in the same boat. We've all recognised that this is a, um, a really unique and, um, uh, you know, a globally um, catastrophic um, event, uh, which has really could have gone either way. I, th I think we're coming out now into a world where we're being able to pause and recognise the change. Um, I don't think we yet know the full economic impact. I'm I'm pretty sure as we go through budget cycles, um, you know, the amount of borrowing is so high, um, both individually and corporately and for governments, we're all going to live in a world where we need to understand how to pay that money back. I think for now, I would say those early days, those short term changes were really well founded on good open banking, um, good digitalization and a recognition that the channel had to change very quickly. And the banks did a very good job. While financial services companies were busy trying to digitise their services, there were big changes happening within their customer base, and those changes would have a great impact on the products they provide. So I think one thing that we really have to keep in mind when we talk about this pandemic is that it's definitely been a tale of two cities. So on the one hand, you have people like me who were able to work from home still get paid, luckily weren't furloughed or laid off, and able to just keep living life. This is Nina Mohanty, founder of Bloom Money, formerly of Klarna and MasterCard. Mostly is normal, just without any social contact. And then you had the other city, which was those people who worked in hospitality or service jobs, who saw themselves furloughed or let go wherever they were in the world, or frontline workers who still had to go to work, or people, yeah, who were oftentimes low income already, and then all of a sudden out of a job. And so I think the unifying theme was that everyone suddenly had to take stock of where they were with their finances. And I think that happens with major crises, although <laughs> the former crisis was man-made with the financial crash, this time around, it was, oh, okay, even if you are in a position where you're sitting at home, things are okay, you did stop and think, oh, wow, I should probably have a think about my finances. And am I 
financially resilient enough if this were to happen again? Am I financially resilient enough to make it to whenever this thing is over? Because let's face it, it's still not over. And then you had people in that other city that I mentioned who were really thinking, how am I going to make ends meet right now? And in the US, you saw stimulus checks and constant back and forth about when people would be receiving their stimulus checks. But you also saw a rise in things like gig work, where people were just trying to make money however they could. And so just across the board, everyone's trying to figure out, like, where do I stand financially? And probably trying to future-proof themselves a bit to go, how do I insulate myself against a shock? So how, how did that begin to affect the financial services companies and the products that they were making? Did the pandemic mean they had to create different products or was it more a case of accelerating or repackaging products that were more in the background before? I think it obviously differs. It differs from each subcategory within financial services where perhaps for those in that first city, those that were quite privileged to be able to stay at home and not lose their jobs, all of a sudden you had banks rolling out their savings accounts, which in the past, they were dusting them off the shelves and going, hey, we have a savings account because there was such a scramble for people who were all of a sudden saving much more than they ever were before. And now they're going, oh, I'd like someplace to park that. Of course, interest rates were quite low. <laughs> so it was really difficult to find a decent savings account. And I think you saw Goldman Sachs Marcus repeatedly slash their interest rates on their savings account over and over. And everyone kept going, this is awful. Where can I park my money to maximize it for those that are maybe more risk averse and didn't want to put it into the markets? Then you maybe saw some financial services institutions go, well, okay, let's capitalize off this. And um, because interest rates are so low, maybe now is a good time for you to get invested in the stock market and introducing people to funds that they could park their money in. So there was definitely a bit of that. I think on the other side, there was definitely a bit of people shopping around for credit products. And this is where it definitely got dangerous because it allowed some of the more predatory lenders out there to really capitalize on this pandemic. And there's always a need for credit. Actually, I would argue that Access to credit is one of the key pillars of financial inclusion. But when people are in a very desperate situation, as this pandemic put a lot of people into, then that can mean accepting terms that you wouldn't ever dream of accepting before. And so I think this pandemic did allow some people to dust some stuff off or take it out of the storage, but also roll out some good things as well. There were some interesting things I liked seeing, things like paired cards or like kind of carer cards that became quite popular for people to issue another card into the same account so that a carer could go to the grocery store for those people who are vulnerable or elderly or needed to shield at home. So there were definitely highlights, but I think it was an opportunity more to remarket and repackage existing products. Financial services wasn't the only industry that was immediately affected by changing consumer behaviour. Automotive players and the personal transportation systems we use were suddenly sidelined and demand for mobility was smaller than ever. Cars went from being a constant in our lives to a stranded asset. To unpack that relationship, 
This is Timothy Mori, Vice President of Global Strategy at Frog. I think it's interesting to look back on the almost year now that we've been in uh, lockdown and impacted by, by this pandemic. And at the outset, when this first began, I think the automotive industry was hit hard. There was fear of how deep is this recession going to be? Are people's lifestyles going to change? If I'm working at home and, and not uh, commuting to work, do I really need that second car? B would demand just plunge? And th there was a lot of, I think, stress and fear around how much uh, capital do I need to put aside to make sure that my automotive company comes through this at the other side. Now, it, it's an interesting uh, a cautionary tale on the danger of predictions is that Actually, what's happened in the last year has been a little different to what we expected, that on the supply side, there have been interesting challenges as people's supply chains were found to be so efficient to the point that, that they weren't very robust. And we're still seeing parts shortages. Semiconductors, I think, is the most recent one that has been in the press where, you know, for the want of uh, certain types of chips, certain cars are not being uh, able to get made and produced. But on the demand side, it's actually not what we expected at all. And I think we, we saw... In the second half of last year, a surge in demand that the new car market couldn't really keep up with. And that even resulted in greater demand for used cars. And the dynamic of that market has shifted. And as we now enter the, the second year of this and then things start to ease up, I think we'll see uh, more change. But there's been just interesting shifts on, on both sides of the equation, both the demand side and the supply. Let's talk about the demand side, because that perhaps isn't the most obvious outcome that you would have expected from a period of economic turbulence. What's changed in our relationships with our vehicles? Yeah, I would think about that in the broader context of what's changed in our relationship with space. And we've been through some fundamental mindset shifts where space is that were considered either you know healthy or good and i'm thinking of things like gyms and spas are now considered risky and dangerous and things like riding trains and, and buses public transportation or a shared ride which i think was seen as an environmentally uh, sound and better alternative to private cars is now also seen as coming with this sort of attendant risk that people are, are reluctant to, to take. And so I think our mindset as consumers leading our daily lives around what's a safe space and what's a risky space has shifted. And that, of course, has impacted the demand side of automotive in a big way as well, where people now have a preference for driving and have a preference for being in a space that they control as opposed to these more shared and public spaces. One of the trends that's impacted almost all industries in the pandemic has been the acceleration of a shift towards digital ways of transacting, digital ways of doing business. What has that looked like in the automotive sector? Because it's a sector you traditionally associate very much with the physical experience of testing cars and visiting dealerships to buy them. Yeah, absolutely. I think so much of our lives, we were on this slow trajectory towards digitalization and increasing digital touch points. And at uh, Frog, we've worked with retail clients, banking, <clears throat> financial services, all on this path to changing how people interact with a company or a brand or its products using more digital touch points. But that was on this very slow, predictable trajectory. And I think through COVID, all of that has accelerated uh, quite dramatically. And uh, it's interesting, the innovation business is a challenging one in the sense that people resist innovation. We talk a 
big game about liking innovation and innovative new products and services. But the truth is, most of us as people are quite conservative. We know what we know, we like what we like, and we're re reluctant to try new things. And as you introduce new experiences into the world, one of our constant challenges is thinking about what, what are the metaphors I can anchor this in? What are the experiences that people are comfortable with? Then I can get them to try new things. And there's an old, old uh, adage about people on holiday are more open to trying new experiences and experimenting. So if you want to introduce a new kind of technology, maybe start putting it in a hotel or places where, where people are in a better mood, a little more willing to take risks. And the same uh, has been true of, of COVID. So it's been this push to get people out of their normal patterns of behavior and suddenly using digital tools. And I'm sure we all have parents, grandparents who are using Zoom and, and uh, digital communications for the first time. So the automotive industry uh, has absolutely you know, been part of this shift where the digital tools that they had in place for the pre-purchase experience, the adoption has accelerated. More and more of those companies have been able to push those touch points out. And I think the interesting challenge now is to think about how do you combine those either mobile or web touch points you know, that you use at home to configure a car, to think about the purchase, to think about financing and so on. And then how do you tie that to the physical experience? And it can be something like a showroom where you come in and your pre-configured car from your phone is available on a large screen and you can do a mock-up or maybe it's a, it's a, a 3D mock-up that you see in, in the space or an AR VR mock-up. Uh, or if people are really hesitant and reluctant to come into a physical dealership, then it has to be that final touch point is a delivery. So somebody will actually bring the car to, to where you are. But like all other industries, I think automotive has, has absolutely seen this shift. And the old model of going to the dealership, taking a car for a, a test drive, and then gearing yourself up for this negotiation battle, I, I think has fallen by the wayside. And, and you know, perhaps we'll come back to that. Maybe there'll be people who enjoy that process. But I have a feeling that the great digital touch points that have been rolled out through this pandemic will persist. And it will be this blended experience in the future of both digital touch points and physical. It wasn't only the way we buy a car that got disrupted. The supply chain and manufacturing of vehicles presented a different set of issues. It was initially really impacted uh, first by the missing uh, consumer demands that really was hitting them them hard. And second, and that was really bitten in a slightly delay, it really hit the entire supply chain operations for the automotive industry, so the OEMs first, but then it really rippled down the entire supply network. This is Sven Dahlmeier, Senior Director at Capgemini Invent, on the pandemic's effect on automotive supply chains last year. And that was really because of this global cadence, really something new and we have not experienced before. The interesting part, at least for the for most of the OEMs, they already or they still had a backlog of cars. And we had a so high demand before COVID in, in cars to be produced, at least for the volume and the, the premium ones, that um, shutting down the plants more or less felt for them that they could not produce the cars that they had in the books already. So in that sense, it means there was really a, a, a delay in cars to be produced and shipped to their customers. Only with a, a slight latency time that the full impact of missing parts from certain regions really hit the entire industry. And that part, uh, so that was not immediately hitting the backlog. Uh. How quickly did COVID-19 cause problems in the supply chain for automotive? That's, that's a good question, also tricky to answer. We first have seen that in China, where the, where the entire pandemic situation started. 
And knowing that there was a kind of a pre-warning for Europe, but also for the Americas. However, the, the full and true impact of what would that mean for the entire network in Europe or the manufacturing plants in Europe, I think that was hardly to grasp and understand and imagine beforehand in that part. So if you, there was from China to Europe, maybe a, a roughly three months notice time in a certain way. Could we imagine what that really means? I think in that full extent was really difficult to grasp up front. Uh, we know, know, we know more, uh, but looking back one year, because it was roughly one year ago in, in Europe when we closed the plants here, that was really a, a fairly new situation. Which parts of the supply chain were most affected? First of all, and, and that is really due to the global global network or supply network, lots of parts are produced in, in, in Asia for the automotive industry. That was really felt very early, uh, just saying this kind of these roughly three months notice period that some of the supplying plants in, in, in Asia have been um, shut down and this really caused some trouble. It's not all parts are sourced here in Europe. So this impact could be seen. And especially if, if you ask me regarding special parts, I would not even um, say that was just, I know, specific parts for some or the other area did really hit um, uh, the broad value of the supply chain, depending on the sourcing policy of the suppliers and, and the OEMs. Paint a global picture for us then, because in an automotive company, you're sourcing components that have been made all over the world and designing the supply chain to optimise costs by manufacturing things in different places. And probably many companies never anticipated a situation like the pandemic that would affect the global interconnectedness of these supply chains. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a fairly good question, especially on the design of the global automotive supply chain. So the global automotive supply chain is really a, a broad network grown over years and it's really cost driven. So it's really the question, what is the, the price per part? And, and that led to a situation that we, we usually do not have multi sources. We, we have a single source or maybe a dual source for, for parts in that area. And that means that really the impact of the pandemic situation really hit the entire supply network. And uh, second part is that uh, due to the way how we supply uh, in the automotive industry, really down to the line, it's especially in the last and the last chain part where we have the just in time, just in sequence part. And then really that, that here it hits the automotive industry. There's not much stock left to last miles, if you like, before the line. So if, if your chain stops down the line before in, in tier two, tier three, tier four, then this really ripples down the entire network. One industry was brought to its knees like no other. In retail, especially physical retail stores, the ripple effects were different. While we rely on physical retail, the shutdown forced the retail industry to look to its own future. I spoke to Jonah Moore, Vice President at Frog, about where retail was moving. I think that what we saw was obviously a big, significant push towards e-commerce and then fulfillment of that e-commerce. So drive up and go, curbside, delivery, you know, all of the customer, all of the customers who really wanted to make sure that they could be fulfilled uh, in new ways of shopping, that they were provided that method. So I, I think that was there. But we saw a big rise in social commerce or, or social media shopping. People were at home. So you see them engaging and, and wanting to look at more stories and engage with people and, and, and see the stories on Instagram, on TikTok. We saw that rise in, in TikTok out there and, and Pinterest. And, and really, I think that during the pandemic, the, the companies who really did not invest in digital 
previously really struggled when we saw that shift because they just weren't prepared to really move fast and engage their customers in new ways and make sure that they can create that awareness of their brand and that their brand was there to be their partner through the pandemic. We talked about the shift towards digital channels. Did that shift towards digital purchasing empower the large incumbent players too much? Did it divide or separate the players in the retail industry? To an extent, it, it did. Obviously, those who had invested in digital and, and making sure that they had that they were ready for those new fulfillment methods with the drive up and go and the curbside, and the and then had the operations related to shipping all there. They did well. People wanted uh, free, fast uh, shipping, so that worked well for them. Because they had worked out all those operational kinks, which really, I think those who didn't invest in that struggle to really make sure that they could win over the customer who wanted that next day item at their homes. But I also think it opened the doors to new startups and new players who really were playing with new ways and, and new storytelling, using the social media methods, pop-up stores to really engage customers. So I think that there was the big players did fairly well. But then also the small players who are trying new and different ways to engage customers, it opened the door for them. Let's talk about the players that struggled most in the pandemic. What types of retailers can we say fared worst in these new market conditions? I would say traditional brick and mortar organizations who didn't invest in digital or really didn't invest in customer experience in, in in new ways, they really struggled. You saw the likes of Pier One, Bed Bath & Beyond, JCPenney. They just did not have that operational mode to work in, in new ways and drive greater awareness in new ways and customer engagement in new ways. So I, I think that they were the ones who were affected the most. You think part of the story is that some of these retailers are struggling to adapt anyway, and then the pandemic accelerated the changes that they were struggling to adapt to. Yes, I, I really think that, and I know for a few of my retail clients, those who, who made that investment and those who really uh, thought about how do I engage a customer, they thought about new ways of working, they shifted their operational model, those ones fared far better than those who just were just doing the status quo. They weren't able, the ones who thought that they could just do as is for the next five, 10 years. Those are the ones who really uh, were accelerated with the challenges and really felt it really hard. As the year of the pandemic rolled on, industry started to get a handle on what they needed to do. But as part of that process, they also made mistakes. In financial services, people depended on their banks as a lifeline, but products that began to lay heavy burdens on consumers' credit were offered up with very little education on the lasting impact they could have. Here's Nina. We already saw a shift, right, in people moving their retail experiences and their payments experiences online or to like mobile devices or whatever. But one of the subcategories or categories that's really thrived during this time has been the buy now, pay later space. And it's been super hot to watch with a firm going public and Klarna raising tons of money and just lots of exciting news. I read today that Stripe is hiring for a buy now, pay later product manager. And so they're, that's raising eyebrows as to what are they getting into that space or are they matching Adya and their competitor who has really good relationships with existing buy now, pay later providers 
And it was a, it's a strange one because when you think about each stakeholder separately, retailers were suffering. And re- a lot of retailers also, this past year has been the push that they needed to get online, to have an e-commerce store, to hire someone to go, how the hell does this Shopify thing work? And so they still needed to sell their goods. They needed to figure out how to do that online. They had no footfall for months at a time. And then you've got people at home who still needed things. My goodness, if you could count the number of Amazon boxes that I received over the past year, I could build my own luxury mansion out of Amazon boxes. But you had all these people and then also maybe younger people or people who were laid off who all of a sudden didn't have as high an affordability that they used to. So then Buy Now, Pay Later was able to sweep in and say, hey, we're helping you afford the things that you need at this time. I think there was some poor messaging across the board from a lot of the Buy Now, Pay Later providers where it was a bit of, hey, hang on, we are still in a global pandemic and we are still entering a recession or now in a recession, should we be encouraging people to buy things that they don't need? So with some of the fast fashion sites, there were probably were some scratched heads going, why does someone need a bodycon sparkly dress right now? I'm not quite sure if that's what they want to wear to work. By all means, they should. But it was that question of, should we be taking out short-term credit for that? So I think that was one mistake and it could have had a lot more a lot more grace attached to it. I think another area that was super interesting was, of course, we've seen the saga of Robin Hood in the past few months unfolding and like all of the drama with GameStop. And I think it was a super interesting thing to see for me as someone who works with a lot of low income populations to sit on both sides of that conversation of that story unfolding and see people getting really into Robin Hood or whatever equivalents here, whether that's Trade Republic in Germany or free trade in the UK and getting really into it with their excess money. And I think it was it was an opportunity to really teach financial literacy and to teach what it means to invest in markets. And it was an opportunity that was many times squandered. So I think from a PR marketing comms perspective, that could have been handled much better as well. This theme of lack of education in financial services began to grow. It started to widen the gap between the two extremes of the market. Consumers started to look to more risky approaches to their finances as the industry struggled to communicate. I think overall, the ones that have a a modern customer voice, what do I mean by that? I mean by... By that, the, the banks that were, or the institutions that were able to uh, discuss with their clients and their customers um, what was happening, keep them informed, keep the dialogue going. Uh, I mean, this is a very modern concept for banking. Uh, this isn't something you would have seen 20 years ago. Um, but, you know, if I point to someone like a Starling Bank um, or um, a Monzo, any, any of the, the new digital banks, actually, they had a really uh, strong, um, I suppose, presence in their customer's mind. So they would... Uh, stick with them through the difficult times. You felt there was someone there 
at your side, um, and they were at the channel you needed. So they 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 appeared on your um, on your feed on your phone. Um, so you would get this conversation. You could immediately speak to somebody when you had a problem. Um, and of course, uh, at the beginning of this, um, most people's minds were on survival. You know, the, the we were we were concerned about um, survival of ourselves from a health point of view. So did we have the right kind of health cover? Did we have the right kind of insurances in place? What would happen if the worst happened to you? How would your family be? You know, these are really major concerns when you're looking down the barrel of a pandemic. Um, then, of course, the, the, the people who run businesses or that were furloughed or that had to move out of a situation. I've got a lot of friends, for example, who are in the creative industries who still are finding it extraordinarily difficult because there is no furlough for them and they aren't able to do what they used to do, which was perform or to create art. Um, so now they're looking for different ways of, of being able to do that. But at the time, they needed cash flow. They needed to be covered on their debts. Those kind of things were really short-term need. And the, and the ones that thrived were the ones that answered those questions. Um, whether that's um, you know a, a lending proposal that's clear and fair, or whether it's um, simply providing good quality transactions at a low cost, um, whether it's providing somewhere to um, put your um, unexpected furlough um, money into so you could at least keep it at the right level and save. Those kind of things, it was those real basics, uh, what I would call brilliant basics of banking. Those are the things that really thrived. Uh, and then, of course, you've got some um, more exotic uh, new animals that came onto the uh, the park. Uh, and, of course, they caught attention because if you suddenly see a, an opportunity where, uh, let's, let's say, for example, peer-to-peer lending or uh, maybe some of the um, investment uh, platforms came along and offered really easy ways to immediately invest your money uh, and maybe create some wealth from that. Um, now, of course, that comes with a, a caveat. And we've all gone through the discussions of um, a post-Robin Hood Coinbase era where you've had meme stocks, which made a lot of money for certain people and others who have lost money. So you've got to be very careful. But again, it goes back to trust and the provision of a very good service that's easy to understand. Financial services wasn't the only industry trying to make rapid changes in the way it spoke to its customers. Retailers scrambled online to try to gain more direct lines of sales with their customers, and this forced digitization didn't always go so well. I think that customers who just doubled down on e-commerce and thought that was going to solve everything, that that wasn't the solution for them. They thought, okay, I'm just going to double down on my website and that, that's going to be the way to solve it. And that was really, that's not the answer because everybody is going to be uh, doing that. I think also companies who just are organizationally thought that they could operate in the same operating models in which they had, where they had those silos of of brick and mortar at working or physical store working in, in one PL, and then you have the digital working in a different PL, and you might even have mobile working in a different team. That really is not going to work for your customers. Customers really want an experience that thinks that think about things holistically that that isn't disjointed and really satisfies their needs especially during a pandemic you're going to have a, a consumer who wants to research online and buy in, and then buy in the store or you're going to want a customer who researched online and then they can just pick it up in an hour and so when we don't provide for those customer needs you're, you're going to lose that customer so companies who really started to think about the ways that they work and the ways that they are, are engaging with their customers, they're the ones who are actually uh, faring a lot better. 
I think the other thing to think about is that the way that customers view these organizations and these brands has really changed. You can see with the Gen Z segment that a lot of them are, are really focused on, on big social causes, Black Lives Matter, sustainability, and they want to work with those brands. They want to work on brands that really traditionally have a great purpose because 2020 really shifted the way that, that our relationships are with the brands that we love. Across all three of our industries, behavior began to converge. Customers, consumers, companies and manufacturers focused more on needs than on wants. As our options narrowed, so did our choices. This is where the underlying change that will have a permanent impact takes hold. The new behaviours learned during this time sometimes improved effectiveness, but the shutdowns created large setbacks in terms of production and availability. Nowhere was this more evident than in supply chains, as shortages of parts and new health and safety measures are still creating strain. Yes, definitely. I, I guess definitely there's a change there. One was for sure that the way how we we had to handle health and safety measures uh, in the plants and the factories that has changed. Even nowadays, it's some of the plants not running full capacity because we have really the workforce split according to the safety uh, and health regulations in there. Uh, that also means maybe not for the blue colors, but for the white colors, the, there are new ways and models of working. We can do a lot remote, a lot more than we could imagine before COVID. And that was always a kind of also maybe a philosophy discussion. Can people work remotely? Are they really producing things? Are they really reliable? Are they, are they reachable in that part? I think COVID has shown us now since a year more or less that this is really working very well. Uh, we can run businesses also remotely to a high extent while not building cars or, or producing yogurts or anything else because there you need really the people on the shop floor. And uh, that has changed definitely. So this, I, and I think this might also be something that lasts a bit longer or will be improved. And, and the second part is really the barrier to use technology has also, it has also be, be lowered a bit using analytic solutions, using robots or RPA solution. Now really clothing the gaps in terms of interfaces or in terms of organizational challenges that these things are now, are now addressed and solved as quickly as possible because they are really limiting currently the capabilities of the organizations. You need any brain you can get to find uh, new solutions to be innovative in a certain way and not letting the people, I know, moving things from left to in a really more or less simple or brainless manner, but that's a bit harsh maybe, but really free up capacity with what we can do with, with the technology that is available. Uh, that's not just uh, since COVID that we have that, uh, we, but we didn't apply that to that extent. And one more dimension in this perhaps is sustainability, because this crisis really shone a spotlight on the globally interconnected nature of our economies, and on how complex supply chains are and whether that's really sustainable. So do you think it's changed the conversation about how supply chains can be more sustainable as well as resilient? Absolutely. I think that, and that is, I guess, not because of COVID or because of the pandemic situation. The anti-sustainability discussion started already a couple of years because it's Fridays for Future, maybe the most prominent one. And so it, it definitely has. And if we consider that we now understand maybe how big the impact is on global networks like the automotive industry in a pandemic situation, then this facet of sustainability will allow us to really 
be more creative and more innovative and, and really factor that in and use that as a kind of a an eye-opener as well as an accelerator uh, to really rethink certain things. Where to supply from? How many suppliers do you need? Uh, is it more local? Is it more near or offshore or so far away or far-reaching? That are discussions. However, we need to be fair. The automotive industry is a global network grown of the, uh, well, over decades. And there's a good reason why there's a, a wide distributed supply network globally in that area on the part and moving today to tomorrow from, I don't know, Asia to, for example, Europe or to Germany or to the, to the States is, is sometimes simply fairly not possible on a short notice now because it's a huge investment in infrastructure it's a it's a big cost impact and a part and uh, it's not only moving a plant you also need to have the suppliers around that plant not only as an oem but also if it be a big tier one or tier two supplier you need a lot of supplying material around that so i guess this is something that I'm a bit careful saying that the entire global network will, will change uh, immediately. However, things like carbon footprint in the supply network, parts traceability down to the raw material, which we have seen already before COVID, like the cobalt in, in the African countries or silicium in the, in the South American countries. I think this will now, after a certain kind of stabilization, which we have, have reached now, this will um, move into the forefront of the discussion and that will have an impact. Uh, we will definitely see changes here driven by sustainability. When restrictions are eased and people can move around more, they'll increasingly be looking at personal vehicles as a safe space, one they can control, creating a renewed interest in the industry that prior to the pandemic had been pursuing more distributed models like ride sharing. You've thought a lot about the emotional aspects involved in purchasing a car. What is it beyond actually buying a car to get around in that prospective buyers are looking for? What needs have to be met? Yeah, so I think in the pre-COVID world and in historically, car buying, depending on the culture, has associations with it. In, in the United States, historically, it was associated with th things like freedom and individual choice. That had been eroding. We, we had done a number of projects with car makers who were deeply concerned that millennials and, and uh, Gen Zs were not buying cars and that people were not interested in owning cars. It was no longer this milestone in your life that it had been for Gen X and, and baby boomers. So there, there had already been concerns about our people's emotional relationships with their vehicle changing. And that had led to interesting new services that were less about the specific individual vehicle that's yours and more about access to vehicles and car makers who would sell you a car, but you also get a subscription package so that if you're going to go to the mountains, you can get a you know, SUV for that. Or if you're going to go to another city on a trip, you can access uh, their fleet. And we had seen experiments with models around fleets and you know, sharing your private car when you're not using it and so on. So that relationship had already been on a change. Now, I think COVID has changed things up yet again, where... Now there is this greater sense of the car as a safe bubble, as a COVID protecting my space that is keeping me sheltered and safe from the environment. And I think that's an interesting change that, that the car makers can capitalize on and meet the, the needs that the passengers have. And I see it manifested in a number of ways. So I, I live in California 
And typically we don't see too many out-of-state number plates because California is a big state. It's a long way to drive here. People would fly and rent a car. All of a sudden, three, four months into the pandemic, I started seeing license plates from New Jersey and from the South or from Georgia and from Louisiana. Plates I'd never seen before and just multiple cars driving around. So I think people have opted to take these long distance drives, hours and hours of driving rather than flying so that they can have a safe and sheltered space. And this sort of emotion of, of private space reminds me a little bit of how car drivers in uh, Japan used to think about their car. And I, I worked with colleagues who on the weekend would catch a train to the edge of their city, go to a large parking lot where they kept their private car. They would get in the car and go for a two, three hour drive in the countryside. And it was all about private space. They could play their music loud. They could have friends there. They often lived at home in in apartments with multi-generational families. So this was their escape. This was their private space. And, and I think we'll start to see uh, a little more of that sort of mindset, perhaps not to the, that extreme of leaving it parked at the edge of your city, but certainly this notion of here is some space that's mine and it's private and safe, I think is going to permeate our driving culture. Interesting, isn't it? That as you say, buying your own car and being able to go wherever you want is the ultimate in our culture of personal freedom. And yet this kind of demand for buying a car has really rocketed in a year when so many of our personal freedoms have been taken away and we've had to stay at home and wash our hands. But maybe that's partly why people want to have a car even more now. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I think each generation is impacted by these major events. I think of the um, wartime generation or even the great generation before that were that had impacts on, on culture that came from the Great Depression. And I, I think about what's the impact on our generation for people who have lived through COVID. And one of them is excessive hand washing. I think we're going to wash our hands. We're surgeons uh, scrubbing in for an operation for the rest of our lives. It's also things like coughing in public has gone from a mild irritant to, I guess it's the modern equivalent of smoking in a public library or something like that. It's, it's, everybody around you is going to come, come in um, and, and uh, scold you or, or, or look at you in a very negative light. And yeah, I think this notion of, of space and safety may be one that we carry into our post-COVID lives or as we learn to live in the post-COVID times that uh, we'll carry that with us. Another lasting effect we've seen is that with more limited choices comes much deeper consideration. Consumers are now taking the time not just to look at the products, but also the company and how those products are delivered. The automotive industry has seen this in the shifting ways that dealerships work but this also applies to retail at a broader level. I think that there's a lot that's going to be permanent. People are going to want to be fulfilled in terms of you know, getting their products. They're going to have that expectation. So we cannot go back to, okay, just go pick it up in the store. I'm going to expect you to come into the store. People are going to be expect that convenience of a fulfillment in, in their daily lives. And I think they were craving that before. This just solidified that in their minds that this is how I want it to work. I, I also think that engaging in these new methods of, of being truly omnichannel and, and truly thinking about the blend of the, the physical store and digital and new methods and personalization, I, I really think that's going to stay too. I, I think customers are enjoying that, are going to go towards the companies that, that provide that to them. But right now, I think the biggest thing that we see is that the retailers need to stop thinking about store. 
separately, web separately, mobile separately. They really need to re- think about what is this customer journey ex- from an experience point of view that I'm trying to fill so that I can keep them engaged with my brand. So thinking about bringing together the digital, the, the physical store, social personalization, emerging technologies that we see that are coming into play with mixed reality and with voice and with gestures, all of these things need to come together. And, and for us, we call that when you orchestrate it very well, convergent design. So the companies who bring those things together are really going to do well in the, in the next few months and years. Do you think the pandemic has forced retailers to focus more on convenience and and raise the bar on convenient shopping experiences so that you can order anything anywhere and have it delivered to your home as quickly as possible? And that that expectation is going to stay? Oh, yes, that that is going to stay. This is why you're seeing Amazon and Amazon Prime still be... Their shopping experience for e-commerce is... it's okay. It, it's there, but it's because of the convenience that, that Prime offers. It's right at my door, sometimes the same day, the next day, two days later, that people want that. People expect that because our lives are busy with other things. Amazon Prime clearly sets a very high benchmark for retailers to follow. But what about the retailers that have a store network and have invested a lot in in-store experience? How do you think they'll need to adapt in line with the paradigm that's accelerated during this pandemic? Yeah, I, I think that if they need to think about bringing together that, generating that excitement, whether it's online through storytelling, through using social social media, like the TikToks and Instagrams of the world, creating that, that awareness and that engagement digitally, and then having it maybe pop up in, in these physical stores in new ways. We're, we're seeing, I think we saw... I think last summer, Netflix doing that whole Stranger Things event, uh, I think down in, in, in LA, and uh, that was really sold out. But people want to to go into the store to be excited by some sort of event. So whether it's live streaming something or connecting with users that way or bringing them in and they're engaging with a virtual mirror or there's a workout class that is happening in the store and you get to try out all the clothes during that workout event. Or I think that we're going to see that when you are really engaging those customers, you can use that space to your advantage, but you just have to be really smart and make sure you're serving whatever need or purpose your customer is looking for. The question that's been hovering over this episode and all of our industries is whether things will go back to the way they were. In some cases they might, but that doesn't mean the damage that was done will go away. As Jonah mentioned, brands are going to have to do a better job of fulfilling core needs and in financial services, they'll need to push further into education and supportive products. I think everything happens in waves in the financial services industry. So right now, as we're still in it and talking about the future, we're all talking about building back better. We're all talking about building an equal world and an equal society and a more equitable financial system. And Ollie, me, I love that. I live for this talk, but I know that we also have very short memories as humans. And at the end of the day, as I said earlier, there's nothing new under the sun. Banking for the most part has remained the same for the past few thousand years financial services are just going the ux will hopefully improve and adapt to the way that we live 
but the underlying principle will still remain the same. I think what I'm hoping though, if I'm allowed to be a bit optimistic, is we have seen how bad it was. We saw, we, I think the statistic was like a 600% increase in visits to food banks in the Western world. We saw UNICEF have to come in to the United Kingdom to feed children. It got really bad. And the income inequality gap has only grown in this past year because you did have people who were able to save and invest and sit at home and be comfortable watching Netflix and then others who were losing their jobs and really struggling to make ends meet. So what I'm hoping to see off the back of this is a redress of, or, or what's a better word, a re-leveling of the playing field. I'm not suggesting that let's eat the rich or anything. What I'm suggesting is that now that we know that these pockets are being underserved or worse preyed upon we need to now create financial services that cater to these people because also another thing to consider is as i said the underlying mechanism principle the underlying principle of banking remains the same and if you're a lender and you're lending out money you still need to underwrite people you still need them to pay it back that's how you're going to make money off of it so if you suddenly have a whole class of people who cannot pay them back, their only options are payday lenders or predatory lenders, that becomes very dangerous. But that also is you losing out on your share of the pie because these people are just cut off completely from your services. Wouldn't it be better for you to provide services to people who are thin to no credit file, who are low income? And help them in the humanitarian aid world, the term is to lift and shift out of poverty. They are usually saying to lift and shift out of poverty, but to lift and shift from this really liminal state into being customers that over time can grow with you and become profitable customers of your bank or financial institution. Someone who needs access to quick credit can over time become someone who takes out a mortgage or a car loan and that person can be profitable can add to your bottom line so i think we have to be logical about it as well <laughs> we can't financially exclude people forever because at the end of the day that won't feed any of our business models looking back at the major shifts and the impact that the pandemic will have it's about more than systems and technology it's about us as people the pandemic was such a shock to the system that it changed our behaviours in so many ways, from accelerating new ways of doing things in some areas of our lives, to withdrawing to safe spaces elsewhere. That change in impact is not over. As we make choices on our way out of the pandemic, we will have to examine the true needs of people and customers all over again. Now we'll always be more conscious of wastefulness or lack of sustainability in our processes, whether in terms of resources, time or money. If the last year taught us anything, it's that we need to build stronger, more resilient and dependable businesses. And we now have better tools and insights to achieve that. This has been Future Sight, The Pandemic Effect. Thank you to Colin, Nina, Sven, Tim and Jonah. You can find out more about them in the episode description. 
If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. This episode was hosted by me, Oliver Jones, written by Ollie Judge from Adrift, and produced by Teresa Ignatius. Future Sight is brought to you by Capgemini Invent. <laughs>